The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Inquest today, the Resurrection Inquest. Now, admittedly, it has taken some time for this inquest to be arranged. Legal processes can be very slow. It's been claimed that a body is missing and we need to establish the cause. The body, of course, is that of Jesus of Nazareth. And the death, we think, has been about 2,000 years ago. Now, on the platform here in front of me, in the stage in the middle, is Ian Powell. Ian has examined the evidence and he is of the view that this Jesus of Nazareth rose physically from the dead. On your left is Barrister Martin Hadley. He will examine and scrutinise the evidence by putting questions to Ian. And on your right is Barrister Ian Davidson, SC. And he is acting as counsel assisting Ian Powell. Ian Davidson will commence proceedings by asking Ian about the evidence upon which he bases his belief. Mr Powell, shortly in the tradition of the early church, you were to be thrown to the lions and interrogated by my learned friend, Mr Hadley. <laughs> However, before then, please very briefly answer my three questions. Is it really your serious contention that Jesus walked out of the tomb? He may not have walked out of the tomb, but yes, I'm happy with that phrase. He, he left the tomb bodily. And have you always held this view? No. Like most people in our country, I just assumed it was a nonsense and a myth, and then I was persuaded. And what is it that persuaded you and caused you to change your view that it was a myth? Well, I think the evidence seems very compelling that after Jesus was executed, that the tomb was empty on the Sunday morning. I don't, I don't know of any historian or scholar in the area who doubts that. Um, that doesn't lead to resurrection necessarily at all. But the second thing is, a group of men and women began to speak in the very town where this had happened, that they not just believed Jesus rose from the dead, it's not what they said at all, they said, we've seen him. So they used this pattern a few times, uh, you killed him, God raised him, we've seen him. And they're either liars or deluded or speaking the truth. And I, having read it and thought it and studied it, came to the reluctant conclusion that they were speaking the truth. Uh, Mr Hadley will now sceptically question you on your reluctantly formed conclusions. Thank you, Mr Davidson. Um, firstly, <clears throat> Mr Caldor, I hope I'm not being excessively sceptical when I recall how you referred to us being on a platform, but <laughs> having a bit of trouble could be an illusion in the event. We um, had a... Thank you. We had a session a bit like this yesterday, and Ian Powell was hoping I'd ask exactly the same questions in the hope that he might be able to give better answers than yesterday, but I'm going to <laughs> depart from that slightly, so... <laughs> Try for better questions. We'll start with a few um, big-picture questions, if yeah. you might. So looking at human history, at times 
suggest religious authorities have been much more powerful than they are in Australia at the moment. Indeed, powerful enough to imprison or even execute people that they didn't like. And some believe that... Um, uh, some believe, of course, that there is not sufficient evidence to prove that a person called Jesus existed at all. Let's, let's put that to one side. Um, most people at least accept that there was a person called Jesus. He was put to death at the behest of the religious authorities. True? By the Romans, because they held the only power to execute, but it, it was Jesus' own countrymen who urged for his execution, but it was the Roman execution. I think we're generally aware of how the various bodies interacted, but it would be a fair summary to say <clears throat> the, the problems for Jesus were instigated by the religious authorities and Pontius Pilate was somewhat cowardly in, uh, or disinterested and, and allowed it to happen and then he was executed. Yes. He was on a... He, he'd already had two disasters and he was told if he had one more disaster with the Jewish nation he was overseeing, he would be relieved of his post. So those Jewish religious authorities claim to be acting on behalf of the one true God. Probably. And as far as they were concerned, Jesus was not any son of God or Messiah or rightful king of the Jews. Yes, they thought he was a deceiver and a sorcerer. And to that extent, even non-Christians, I'd suggest, can be interested in Jesus as a victim of a corrupt legal system at that time. Yes, the question I think is why. I mean, thousands of people have gone through similar corrupt processes. Thousands of Jews were crucified by the Romans around the time of Jesus and yet there's only one that people have any interest in. My question is, it's interesting to know why. Christian theologians say, of course, that there was more to it than just a person being mistreated by legal authorities. They say he was the son of God and God sent him to deliver an important message about salvation. Yes. Yeah. And so therefore, Christians believe that Jesus was more than just another heretic or agitator whom the authorities persecuted and executed. Yes. And Christians believe that the main indication of Jesus' special status, his divinity, is the resurrection that we've been discussing. It all, according to him and according to the first Christians, it all hangs on the resurrection. <clears throat> if he hasn't risen from the dead, the, some of the earliest Christian writing is clear. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your religion is worthless, you're still in your sins, and we are liars about God. So yes, it all hangs on that one leg or that one rope. And the basic story is of a corpse coming back to life and making various appearances during a period of 40 days uh, before going back to God in heaven. Yeah, basically. And these are alleged to be unprecedented events in human history? Uh, yes, as, as they form a package, absolutely. There are, in Jesus' own life, there are claims that he raised a few people from the dead, but to raise yourself having promised that that would happen uh, is of a different order. And the total package, as you refer to it, is totally outside what we call natural experiences. Certainly not ordinary. And it also tied in with a number of prophecies. Perhaps. So Christians believe it was, the whole package was clear evidence of a divine plan. Well, I think what the early Christians just kept saying is, you killed him, God raised him, we saw him. So it's all, it's not so much a package of beliefs, it, it all hangs on this repeated statement, we are witnesses. 
On the other hand, non-Christians say that the resurrection events didn't happen, that it's either a deliberate hoax or Chinese whispers or something like that, but it, for whatever reason it didn't happen as per the written accounts. Well, some do. There, there are a number of scholars, which we can come to later, who are atheists and certainly not believers, who are very clear that the disciples of Jesus had experience of a risen Jesus after his death. And one of them, E.P. Sanders, who's not a Christian, or is probably, I think he's an atheist, he says, I just have no explanation for it. So they're saying the evidence for the empty tomb and the appearances is very strong, but they, they fail to have any way to make sense of it. So I'd suggest to you that when we're considering whether it was a divine plan being implemented, it's sensible to consider, or it's reasonable to consider, how effective that plan turned out to be. You might. I'm not sure you'd be working out whatever categories you have, but I think the real issue is, did he or did he not rise? Did those men and women see him or not? The first problem, isn't it, um, is that the appearances were taking place only in a very limited geographical area. Yes, they did. So, therefore, um, there were only a very small number of potential eyewitnesses. They were certainly limited. There's Mm. quite a a number. Compared to the overall population of humanity, it was extremely limited. Uh, Yes. I'm hoping for a straight answer. Well, yes, it's pretty straight. That's straight. And um, people further away might later hear stories rather than be eyewitnesses at the time. Yeah, that's the way history works. If you're not there in the room, you miss it. Given the reality of how far Jesus is said to have walked from the area of the tomb, the the events occurred quite locally. Absolutely, yeah. They were were in Israel, Palestine, whatever you want to call it. So people further away might hear stories or they might die first. Yes. And almost all of the people on earth at the time of the 40 days, I suggest, had no chance of hearing the message and were basically certain to die in complete ignorance of the resurrection events. Yes. And many parts of the world were not destined to hear anything about the Christian message for centuries. Yes. If we take, for example, the supposed traditional custodians of this place, they had to wait a very long time, didn't they, to hear anything about Christianity. Christians were very slack in bringing the news, yeah. Going back to Jerusalem, Jesus um, was able to appear to the Jews there. Um, and if every part of the resurrection story is true, uh, nevertheless, he only appeared to a few hundred people. Yes. And some of them were not convinced, according to the Bible itself. Which ones do you think of? There's the reference to him appearing to a number of people on a mountain towards the end. Oh, some yes. Of them were not yeah, convinced. Okay. Then, some of the people he appeared to yeah. were not convinced. Do you want me to say anything about that? Hmm. Yes, no. If, if you read, if you read the, the source documents, the, the, the accounts of the earliest witnesses, one of the intriguing things is that when Jesus turns up, it's in, it's in Luke's Gospel, he turns up in the room with the disciples. They'd heard from the women that he'd risen. They didn't believe that. So when he turns up, twice it says, even as he's in front of them, they, they had doubt, they couldn't believe it, and which is excellent because they're simply saying, like, like us... If you see someone who you know has been not just dead, but torn apart dead, nailed, whipped, etc., you know they don't come back. We all know dead people stay dead, but there he is standing in front of them. So the, the honesty of the accounts is that they keep saying, but they almost couldn't believe it, so Jesus has to give them proof. He, and then in Matthew, right at the end, his last meeting with the disciples, it says some, they worshipped him, but some doubted. It, it actually goes to the extraordinary honesty of the witnesses that they don't just say and they all believe. 
I think the first appearance was to a lady and uh, she thought he was a gardener. I forget which gospel that was from. Yeah, I mean, Mary, Mary was enormously distressed and roaming around. The body had gone and, again, this is worth noting, the early Christians didn't go, oh, missing body must have risen from the dead. They're not... That's just a ridiculous... And Thomas, who was a disciple... Yeah. And I think has since become the patron saint of sceptics. He never uh, accepted that Jesus had come back. He? No, he did. He certainly did. But, but, he, but when he's... I don't know where he was. But when Jesus appeared to the ten of his closest friends, Judas had killed himself, uh, he wasn't there. And when his friends said, we have seen the Lord, uh, he did to them exactly what they did to the women. They just said, rubbish. And Thomas didn't believe it until Jesus appeared to him a week later and then came over to him and said... Put your finger where the nails were. Put your hand. He's saying, Thomas, look at the evidence and therefore give up your non-believing because it's false. So yes, but actually he's the patron saint of India. In relation to thank you. In relation to the idea of Jesus only appearing to a very small part of the world's population yeah. at the time, do the theologians have a, an explanation for God doing it in that way? If it was meant to be a message for everyone? Uh, I think it, it, it does seem that the and I'm only guessing here, just observing what God does and then that God seems to start his work with one person. So he starts with Abraham uh, and, then it, and lets it grow. He starts in Israel with Jesus and a handful of fairly poorly chosen, I would have thought, disciples, who, who in the end do start the largest movement in human history. It would have been very interesting if the risen Jesus had started with Pilate and said something like, please give my regards to Emperor Tiberius and tell him what you've seen. That would have been amazing, wouldn't it? It, w- it would have been interesting. I think one of the things, that, according, if, if I can just take what the eyewitnesses say, there are plenty of cases where people see the evidence for Jesus, and you see this when he raises Lazarus from the dead, four days dead, and the religious authorities say, see what this man is doing. If he keeps acting like this, everyone will believe we've got to kill him. So the, it's, a, it's a hopelessly romantic view of humans that our problem is simply access to truth. Often enough, humans know what the truth is or what we should do and we don't do it. And so the New Testament uh, has got many examples of Jesus doing things in front of his enemies and his enemies saying, how are we going to suppress this? I mean, the same, I do the same things at times. Uncomfortable truths are suppressed. Jesus defeating death is not just good news. It's got an awkward side to it as well. So Peter will let me know when I'm running out of time on this topic, but we'll go a little bit further. Um, So instead of appearing to uh, Pilate or, or the Jewish authorities or important people, we are told that Jesus appeared or chose to appear to only a fraction, small fraction, of the Jewish population um, and then the story, story would pass to others later by word of mouth. Which it has, hasn't it? I mean, here it is in Australia. Now, most of the Jews he appeared to and most of the Jews in Jerusalem who would hear the stories in the near future, they knew about the biblical prophecies, didn't they? Well, some would have, presumably. They should have known their Bible. But there's no particular prophecies of... Mm. There's no prophecies of a Messiah rising from the dead. And those Jews certainly didn't accept that Jesus had any divine status or that he'd risen from the dead. Who's the those saying? The, the Jews in, around Jerusalem at the time. The officials. Shortly after the 40 days. Yes. Well, Jewish citizens, not just the... Well, I don't, know, I don't know what the average citizen believed. I imagine they were a bit <coughs> confused because there were many people who'd seen Jesus do all sorts of impressive work and they'd seen him die which if you're a Jew is absolute proof he's not the Messiah because Messiahs don't get killed by the Romans, they kill the Romans. So I'm not sure what the average guys thought, but we do know that the officials had taken the position that they needed to remove Jesus because he was a threat. But some of them were told later, we know some by name, became convinced and changed sides. I suggested yesterday that not many of the local Jews bought the story and you, you responded by saying that 
it did explode, was the word used, Christianity did explode in other areas. Well, within a few weeks, there were 5,000 people in Jerusalem who were paid-up members of, you know, who who were believers and who believed what the apostles said. So 5,000 is not bad when you think that Jerusalem is a city which would fit into Centennial Park. And it, it, it grew, I guess, you might think, like a cancer, which can start with one cell and given time as multiplication, it's quite an effective way to uh, grow. The explosion was rather slow in other areas compared to, say, the rise of communism last century, wasn't it? Well, I mean, you see Karl Marx writing his book in the London, in, in the British Library. It takes a long time before he gets anyone... Well, if you take the Bolsheviks in... A hundred years ago, exactly from today, there are about as many as there are committee members of the Australian Skeptics in New South Wales, about, about a dozen of them. Mm-hmm. And there were millions within a few years. Yes. If you use the gun, it's remarkably how quickly you can convince people. <laughs> Even to this day, the majority of humans are following some religion other than Christianity... Yeah. And there's debate, of course, about how many Christians just tick the census box but don't really walk the walk. Yes. Yeah? Like those atheists who pray. <laughs> That's news to me. But you say that the only explanation of all of this is that it is a, a divine plan. No, I, I, there's, there's a million explanations. I'm saying by far the best explanation, the one that makes this, the most straightforward sense of the, of the two key bits of information. The body's missing, which is unusual but not not unique and then a group of men and women who are not saying we have some interesting religious views but are saying we saw him and that it's to it's to make a, a rational sense of those two bits of information you can there you can quite you can have and there have been in history quite a lot of books written trying to interpret the data in another way but i think it's fair to say this is a long answer that in modern Scholarship in the resurrection, which is not just done by Christians, that would be a mistake. It's done by atheists and Jews and agnostics and all sorts of people. All the possible other explanations have pretty much been abandoned uh, because they've all been tried, the four or five other possibilities. And what people are saying, like E.P. Sanders and Gerd Ludeman, who's an atheist scholar, they say, yes, something strange happened. We just don't know what. So, last question on this topic. Um, or for the moment, yeah. you'd say that uh, looking at the consequences of, of Jesus, the idea of him being sent as a messenger from God to save us all, that plan has been sufficiently successful to, to indicate that it was a divine plan. Uh, I'm not sure if humans' assessments of divine plans is all that useful, uh, like a cockroach assessing the success of my plan. Uh, I don't think, but I just think... The evidence that he rose, I think, is strong. And what exactly, how that message spreads and the the things in history that slowed it down. Because there are some great movements in history that locked Christianity up. But I'm I'm not a judge of that. I think, nonetheless, it is from its peculiarly small beginnings. Jesus, three years with his disciples. Buddha, 40 years with his, before he set up his thing. Muhammad, 20 years with his boys. By his death, he'd, he'd conquered the whole of Arabia and the armies were ready to go. Jesus, three years dies should have been snuffed out but it actually goes nuts at the very point when it should die I see the time, thank you Mr Davidson Mr Powell in a number of those questions about views of the resurrection you made a reference to non-Christian scholars we can come to later and you mentioned E.P. Sanders 
you also just mentioned at the end, was it Gerd Ludemann? Gerd Ludemann. And yeah. what, uh, what insight do you derive from Gerd Ludemann? Well, Ludemann is, like Sanders, it's crystal clear that, that, the, that the disciples had what he calls resurrection appearances that transformed them from a bunch of ordinary men who were cowards at the crucial moment in Jesus' life into an unstoppable um, movement where most of them died, which doesn't prove it's true, but it does prove they're, prove they're convinced, um, particularly because most of them died alone, not as a little group holding each other's hands. Um, so Ludeman is one of the scholars who says it seems that they had some resurrection appearance. Because he's an atheist, he cannot believe in the resurrection, so he, he has another alternative explanation. And are there any uh, Orthodox Jewish scholars you wish to refer to <laughs> in this topic? Pink Aslapede, oh, I just think it's a wonderful name. Uh, Professor Pink Aslapede, who sadly is now dead, an Orthodox Jewish scholar and historian, um, wrote a book called uh, A Jewish Perspective on the Resurrection where he says he's quite clear that Jesus, um, his resurrection was not something that happened in the disciples, in the psychology of the disciples, but it was something that happened to Jesus and that it's a real historical event. So yes, when... There's an interesting history over the last few hundred years of people with a, a worldview and religious agenda that would make them deeply sceptical of the resurrection when they look at the evidence of being persuaded. And Pink Aslapid is perhaps the classic of late. Now, you asked some questions on the, the, the fact that it's recorded that even when Jesus appeared to people, some are recorded in the scriptures as not being convinced. Yes. Uh, what does that tell you about the reliabilities of the authors who record those accounts? Yes, I, I think it does. It's an interesting insight into the sorts of people writing, that they, they record the full picture. They don't say, he appeared and they all worshipped. He said, they worshipped but a few doubted. Um, that, and that when the early Christians, who are the core of the church, when they get the message sent by angels to them through the women, they dismiss it as idle nonsense. That there, I think there's a certain there's an integrity that I find impressive in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the way that they record stuff that's unhelpful, like the fact that twice people meet Jesus and don't recognise him immediately. Well, whole books have been written making a big song and dance about that. Now I wouldn't have included those. Frankly, I'd have left that bit of data out because it does give people who want to find a way out. So that yes, I think the this it's about three or four times when Jesus appears where people are going, no, it can't be happening. And Jesus does things like, touch me, I'm not a ghost. Give me something to eat, because the Jews believe that ghosts and spirits don't eat. So he's happy to give them evidence to let them take on board that the impossible has happened. And then uh, finally, before uh, Mr Hadley has his uh, second bite at you, uh, the question was asked, uh, interesting question with respect, as we always do things with respect, uh, that... What, Jesus could have appeared to Pontius Pilate and said, you know, give my regards to Tiberius. Uh, how is it that Christianity, and this has to be in a sentence or two, uh, came to actually supplant emperor worship in the Roman Empire when that course wasn't followed? Yes, that is a, that's a big, it's a historical question, so there's many different ways of reading it. Can I say, for all we know, Jesus may have appeared to Pilate. Um, and we just don't know. Right. He may have appeared to people who chose not to believe in him. We just don't know. We know that he did appear to some of his enemies, like his brothers who, didn't, who mocked him in John 7, like to the Apostle Paul, 
Um, so it, mm. it did appear to some enemies. We have the records of those who were persuaded. Mm. The movement of Christianity... And indeed, those who were persuaded and is written about. Yes. I mean, there may be uh, ones persuaded who, who weren't written about. Yes, and it's not uncommon for people to know truth that they choose not to follow because it's hard. The, how Christianity moved to the point that within 30 years, Nero blamed the Christians for the fire that burnt Rome down and, and tortured them and threw them out. So they were already causing trouble in Rome 30 years later. Uh, and then within a couple of hundred years, either Constantine did become a Christian or Constantine thought there were so many Christians in the Roman Empire by 300-something AD that it would be a shrewd move to say he was Christian. That is a remarkable growth from a handful of nobodies on the very outskirts of the empire that within 300 years, with not a single sword raised by the Christians, just love and prayer and argument that the Roman Empire, emperor which had killed Jesus, killed many, many of his disciples in the end said, we're now going to allow Christianity. Thank you, Mr. Davidson. I thought Constantine was fairly handy with a sword when he needed to be. But oh, he, he, was, he was very handy, but the, the, the Christians themselves for 300 years never picked up a weapon to defend themselves, to fight. They were just... I'm just saying, unlike our, our Islamic neighbours, where there's no doubt how Islam spread through to Spain, etc., with, with the sword, Christianity... Once Constantine... This is what always happens with religion. Once Constantine became Christian, he was the emperor then things got muddled. So many Christians view Constantine becoming Christian as a, as a very, very mixed blessing. But the Christianity spread through the Roman Empire as a force of weakness and love and kindness. And they never picked up a sword? No, there's no not, not that I'm aware of. So the fellow who sliced off an ear at the time of Jesus' arrest, he wasn't then a Christian, I suppose, because he was still Jewish. You're talking about when, when Jesus was arrested. Um, was it Peter? Peter pulled up a sword Peter, the illiterate thug. and was, was completely ticked off by Jesus and said, you know, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Do you not realise I could call down 10,000 angels and oh, heal the man's I'm ear? I'm in enough trouble already. So, so uh, yeah, but yes, I'll, Peter... I'll never get a section 10 at this rate. Peter was, a, Peter was a blockhead, but he was a well-intentioned block and Jesus shows very clearly the sword is not his way. I think it would help 10. the members of the jury. Uh, that's when you get let off with a caution. Okay. Let's, let's have a quick run through the uh, position of the eyewitnesses because there have been questions about their reliability and the yeah. honesty. And, yeah. and so one can only be reliable if you're in a position for your honesty to have some effect. So let's just run through this quickly. And in relation to the two topics of discovery of the empty tomb and the appearances of the risen Jesus. And by the way, yesterday you agreed, didn't you, that the missing tomb in itself does not prove the resurrection. It's an unusual event, but yeah. it is capable of non-divine oh, yeah, explanations. Okay, now none of the gospel writers say they were there when the empty tomb was discovered. Yes, that's true. Um, and if we look at Mark, um, we're not sure that he even met... Um, or I'll go back a step. All of the accounts we have in the gospels about the empty tomb presumably came from the ladies who are said to have found the tomb empty. Peter and John go soon because the women come back to tell the men who are hiding... And Peter and John run off to have a look. That's on John's version, isn't it? Yeah. I think, there's a, I think one of the other Gospels also mentions that Peter went and looked and came back <coughs> and was perplexed. Now, yeah. I suggested yesterday that Mark had never met Jesus, and you said, well, Mark might have been the 
naked man who ran away at the time that Jesus was arrested. That's what some scholars say. And you seem to endorse that yesterday. I suggest it was a minority view. Yeah, Mark, I think, is is generally understood by scholars, certainly I'm not a scholar, but I'm persuaded by them, that he's writing the recollections of Peter. There's writings in the second century that they say that. And the, the fascinating thing is that the early Christians don't call it Peter's gospel, which is what you would do if you were into... But they, they say it's Mark, who's, who's not only... Well, Peter couldn't write, could he? Well, no, he might have. He's a, a Jewish fisherman, so he's I thought Luke class. said he was illiterate. No, there's nothing about Peter being illiterate. Okay, we'll check that. But um, the reason that you think Mark might have been this naked man, I presume it's because Mark's gospel refers to this person, nobody else does. Yes, that's what scholars... Is it's, that it's, as far it's, as it goes? It's, it's about that. Yeah. He was, Mark was called Mark of Jerusalem. There's a young man who, when Jesus is being arrested, gets his clothes grabbed and he's got no underwear. Uh, he was going commando. And... He runs, and people just said, this is such a ridiculous thing to have when the Son of God's being arrested. So scholars suggest it was probably him. So Apart from this idea, Mark didn't meet Jesus, as far as we know. No, well, um, we, don't, we just don't know. So, I mean, unless I he was that man, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but he might have, we just don't know. But I'm happy to, let's pretend he didn't. Yeah, the most widely accepted tradition, I'd suggest, is that Mark became a follower of Jesus after his death and wrote down what Peter told him, as you said a yeah. minute ago. And um, Peter, of course, was not present when the tomb was discovered. Nope. So Mark is passing on a story that has originated with the women who discovered the empty tomb. Uh, and also, unless Mark was this naked man, yeah. um, we don't know whether he was around during the 40 days of the risen Jesus. I think, I think you're implying he, he didn't meet Jesus. I think it's more accurate to say we just don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Um, I mean, I've read that the consensus is that he became a follower several years later. So. Anyway, Luke um, arrived even after Mark, didn't he? And... Uh, some people say he was moved to, to write his gospel because he didn't think Mark was, Mark's was good enough. Well, we have no idea. That's pure okay. conjecture. All right. But uh, his gospel claims to have sought out all the available information from the best sources he could find, um, and that would have included the ladies, I suppose, they were still alive. Absolutely. Um, I might ask you this. I can just disclose that one of my favourite stories in the New Testament is the story of the water into wine. Um, and I presume... And You'd agree that it was alcoholic wine. Absolutely. Some fundamentalists say it can't yeah, be alcoholic because no. that would open the mind to wickedness yeah. and everything, but it seems like those people have been on the Terps for several hours before the miracle in any event. Um, this is my question. If Luke was giving us the best full account, why did he leave out that fantastic story? Um, I think for the reason where John... I don't think he ever says he gives a full account. He, gives, he says he, he gave it in, in order... In John's Gospel, at the end of John's Gospel, John simply says, you know, I guess if I wrote down everything Jesus did, you know, the world couldn't hold the book. This is not the half of it, yeah. Yeah, so I think in the end, when you've got Jesus doing things and saying things for three years, um, there's a huge amount. And, and what they do is, and there's no hiding, there's no secret, there's no shame in it. They simply record the things that, that made the biggest impression on them. So John records the water into wine. So not um, the half of it, John includes it. And Luke, who's trying to do... The whole, the full Monty doesn't include it. I never understood why. Well, just because you think it's the best doesn't mean it is the best. <laughs> but um, I mean, it's actually one level a remarkably trivial miracle. It happens at a peasant wedding, uh, and Jesus seems reluctant to do it at first, and then does it to turn a moment of terrible shame for the couple into a moment of great joy. And John thinks it's an absolute picture of what Jesus comes to do to turn the dullness of water. <coughs> into the joyfulness of, of wine. I, I think, I, like you, if, if you and I wrote a gospel, I think we'd both put that one in. And just, just quickly, um, Matthew is thought 
to have met Jesus, um, and he could have been in prison during the 40 days, and the same with John. Yep. 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 Now, Paul has nothing to say about the empty tomb, but he gives a summary of the risen appearances that we discussed yesterday briefly yep. in 1 Absence. Corinthians 15. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he did not personally witness any of those appearances. He said he had his own vision yeah, later he, on, didn't he? He had his own appearance, yeah. And I think nobody else saw Jesus at that time, so we have to take Paul's word for it, don't we, on his own yep, vision? I think so. And I don't mind if you want to dismiss it. So in relation to the, what he says in 1 Corinthians 15... He actually discloses that this is the story he's heard and, and this is the story that he's been passing on. He is crystal clear. He says, I received it. He uses technical language. I received this Verse three. and I passed it on to you. It's the language of... of um, that's how you did education in the Roman, Greek and Jewish world. You received things from the experts. You then, it was your responsibility to pass it on. So Paul is crystal clear that the thing when he says he, Christ died and was buried and rose and appeared in this sort of rhythmic thing that the Jews often do with language. Uh, yes, he says, this is a thing he received and he passed it on. Thank yeah. you. Peter, um, I'm getting the wind-up, but will I have the final summary after that? Yeah. Yep. Okay, thanks. So, um, in terms of the risen Jesus, we uh, have two possible eyewitnesses. In terms of the empty tomb, we have no eyewitnesses in the forms of the Gospel writers or Paul. That's where we end up. Um, and only in Paul do we find a reference to the most significant appearance before 500 people at once. Well, again, you think it's the most significant. I don't. It's, it's interesting where All Paul right. says to 500 people. We'll leave it to the audience to decide how yeah. significant it is. It's the most numerous. Yes. And it only gets a reference in Paul. Yes. Um, so someone's told Paul about that, and we yes. can only guess as to who told him about the 500. Yes. Now, Luke, who, again, we think was trying to do the ultimate good job. So he says in his introduction, which I suggest is typical of a would-be historian in those days, um, Luke says nothing about this appearance to the 500. What's your view on that? I mean, what Luke, the number, I think, is the thing that has, has caught your attention. What we have is, in the, if you read through, just grab a Bible on the net, probably good as way as any, uh, and just read the last chapter and a half of each of the four Gospels. It'll take you half an hour. And the interesting thing is you've got Jesus appearing in the inner room, beside the lake, on a mountain, all over the place, to one people, to, to two people, to ten people, to larger groups which are unnumbered. Uh, there's just a remarkable diversity, which is why people think they can't be hallucinations, because hallucinations have a certain character and the way in which they happen in terms of expectation and sacred place, etc. Uh, Jesus is sort of around about the place. I think with Luke, um, I don't know why Luke doesn't give us a number at that point. Uh, it may be that uh, one of the other at times in the Gospels and the other Gospels, when Jesus appears to a group of people, one of them was the 500. I, I'm not sure what we can do from this point, except Luke tells a series of people who meet Jesus. Um, Paul has another list that he got when he went to Jerusalem. But can I say, the other, but it's, it's, it's not that there isn't an eyewitness to the empty tomb. The empty tomb was empty from then on, and, and it was open for any number of people to peruse. But even the more interesting thing, if you wanted to have a go at the story, I would have thought, is that there's no actual description of the resurrection itself, that, which is peculiar when you think about it. The two biggest things in Christianity, the death of Jesus, the resurrection, there's no description of the resurrection. Unless you get one of the other Gospels written 300 years later, where there's a fulsome, foolish description the early guys just, they don't record it because they didn't see it. Now, Because a resurrection would require a miracle, whereas someone who looked like Jesus and was mistaken for other people, this could be engineered by a couple of people, couldn't it? 
Who would you like to suggest who? If it was a conspiracy, one or two people could have pulled it off. To steal the body? No, no, to impersonate Jesus after the resurrection. Yes, I think the difficulty with that is with Jesus, I think that's the significance that we have of Jesus saying, stick your finger in here. And also the fact that James, his they, brother... Was there any sticking done? Or no, it just doesn't, it doesn't, there's, well, there's no description. Thomas falls at his feet and says, my Lord and my God. It's good enough but for me. It's yeah. also the brother of Jesus, James, becomes a believer uh, at the resurrection. Uh, so I think there's the, the argument that this is some conspiracy with someone who looked like Jesus. Um, run that. But I think um, scholars have tried, they've tried that and it, it doesn't sustain any weight. I'm out of time, Mr. Davidson. Thank you. Yeah. Just in terms of impersonating um, Jesus, uh, would that have included having to uh, walk through walls? Yes. One of, the, one of the unusual things that the resurrected Jesus does that the pre-resurrected Jesus never does is he does seem to be able to move his body through walls. It's, just, it's, just, it's not commented on. You just Jesus turns up in rooms that are, where the doors are locked. And nothing is made of it, but it's quite different um, to what was happening beforehand. And the second permitted question, uh, when Paul, you gave answers that Paul had said he'd received and he passed on information. Uh, when, uh, when did Paul receive that information and where did he receive it? So to go to, we're back in 1 Corinthians 15, um, where Paul writes about the resurrection. Um, scholars like Gerd Ludemann, the, the famous atheist scholar, they, they have... There's a general serious consensus among scholars of all types that the Apostle Paul received that list of people and that receiving about Christ died, buried, rose and appeared, that sort of, um, about between four to eight years after Jesus' death. And what scholars say with that is what it it indicates, because he visits uh, in the life before we know he visits Jerusalem then, uh, it, it shows that the resurrection was not a late mythic addition to a story of a fine Jewish teacher that there never was a Christianity that wasn't about the resurrection because that's actually what starts it. And if you can, and, and that's why I'm a Christian because I, I find the evidence I was persuasive when I was not a Christian and I find it still very strong. Just give a closing, some closing remarks, ladies and gentlemen. As a matter of logic, um, no one today can prove that the resurrection did not happen, can't prove a negative. But we can pose reasonable questions to ourselves and try to answer them as honestly as we can. Questions such as, how reliable is the source material? Are we considering the implications of events without confident knowledge that the events ever in fact occurred? That can be a problem if you're over-analyzing things without actually establishing that these things ever took place. Does it all look like a divine plan? And If we allow that a a divine plan could fail as a result of human wickedness, nevertheless, don't you still face this question, ladies and gentlemen, wouldn't a divine plan to save humanity start off with better prospects of success than these isolated appearances in one part of the world? And the final question I want you to ask yourselves is why not increase your chances of enlightenment by joining the Australian Skeptics? Thank you. Uh, after Mr Hadley's altar call, uh, uh, I would endorse the, the, the sceptical approach and indeed some of the questions that he's asked, how reliable are the sources, uh, 
uh, how confident uh, the knowledge that took place. Their questions we'd encourage you to do, and no doubt that's, a, that's part of the organisers' role here. Uh, we accept that the, the claim that God raised Jesus from the dead is sufficiently out of the ordinary for there to be a sceptical examination. But not to say resurrections can't happen because God didn't exist or God's plan wasn't good enough, and therefore Jesus can't have been raised from the dead. So to ignore the compelling evidence uh, would be a risk. Now, when I was assigned Mr Powell as my witness, a uh, man who said he was not a scholar, I thought, goodness, that they're, they're, they're applying 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, guys. But the testimony of Mr Powell today does show that after testing by a sceptical examiner, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is real history. And it's naive and dangerous to think the alternatives of hoax stand up to serious analysis. There could have been comments, but the alternatives that have been put up really don't stack up. So the logical alternative for you, the audience, the jury, is to accept that the resurrection occurred. The more, uh, it's common ground. Jesus died, existed, died, uh, and then the issue is, but was he raised from the, uh, from the dead? Common ground is a missing body, although common ground that a missing body of itself doesn't establish Jesus rose from the dead. But the best explanation of the reasons that various people said they saw Jesus raised from the dead uh, was that they did see him raised from the, the dead. So members of this august jury uh, doing your duty, the easy outcome of this inquest will be your verdict that Jesus is no longer dead and that is because God raised him from the dead. But might I say the more challenging question for you might be, uh, what are you going to do about the verdict that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, can you uh... join me in thanking our learned counsel and Ian Powell. Now, I realise there are more mundane matters at hand for most of you, so I will dismiss this inquest in a moment and allow you to consider your verdict. And we do encourage discussion amongst your fellow jurors. I hope you enjoyed this session and uh, see you next week. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.